You call yourself a democratic socialist. How can any kind of socialist win a general election in the United States? Well, we're going to win because first we're going to explain what democratic socialism is. And what democratic socialism is about is saying that it is immoral and wrong that the top one-tenth of one percent in this country own almost 90 percent, almost own almost as much wealth as the bottom 90 percent. That it is wrong today in a rigged economy that 57 percent of all new income is going to the top one percent. That when you look around the world, you see every other major country providing health care to all people as a right, except the United States. You see every other major country saying to moms that when you have a baby, we're not going to separate you from your newborn baby because we are going to have, we are going to have medical and family paid leave like every other country on earth. Those are some of the principles that I believe in. And I think we should look to countries like Denmark, like Sweden and Norway, and learn from what they have accomplished for their working people. I don't need to tell most listeners that the distinctive Brooklyn voice they just heard was Democratic Socialist Senator Bernie Sanders. That was an exchange with CNN's Anderson Cooper during the Democratic presidential candidates debate in Las Vegas, Nevada on October 13, 2015. At the time, Sanders was in what turned out to be a close race with Hillary Clinton for the 2016 nomination, a contest that Clinton ultimately won. While some blamed a primary battle that went deep into the spring campaign season for Clinton's ultimate loss to Donald Trump in November 2016, there is a better way to look at Sanders' epic run. No self-declared socialist had made such a mark on a presidential cycle since Eugene Debs won almost a million votes as the Socialist Party of America candidate in the 1920 election. And imagine how well Debs might have done had he not been incarcerated in federal prison. Sanders was and is a lifetime socialist. Sanders was and is a lifetime socialist. He was first elected to Congress from Vermont's at-large district in 1990, and he made the jump to the Senate in 2006. He's very popular where I live in New England, And it's not because those states are socialist, as the Republican Party would tell you, but because he has consistently championed the interests of all working people. Bernie has my vote, said one blue-collar guy who answered the door in southern New Hampshire when I was canvassing for Elizabeth Warren in 2020. Whenever there's a strike around here, he walks the picket line with us. Lots of Democratic senators back labor, of course. But how many mainstream politicians are willing to say that capitalism is broken? that we need the state to safeguard all workers from exploitation by providing a living wage, nutritious food, Medicare for all, safe working conditions, child care, the right to unionization, affordable housing and food, renewable energy, and free education, that it is an affront to human decency to allow banks, hedge funds, and corporations to poison the environment, turn all labor into piecework, and financialize the basic necessities that all humans need to live. Perhaps what the 2016 Sanders campaign said most clearly to Americans was, we have choices. In a democratic system, we don't have to allow corporations to run our lives, make us work harder for less, profit from poverty, siphon their profits upwards, and pay no taxes. And the moments where that clarity has come to more people are coming faster and faster. The 1999 World Trade Organization protests in Seattle, 
The 2011 takeover of Zuccotti Park in Lower Manhattan by Occupy Wall Street that launched a global anti-capitalist protest. A resurgence of Democratic Socialists of America after 2013 that is credited with the emergence of millennial socialism. Many of those young people swelled the ranks of Black Lives Matter, which took to the streets in the summer of 2020 to put racism back on the national agenda. In all of these movements, activists and intellectuals have worked to expand the socialist vision by weaving critical race, feminist, indigenous, queer, labor, and climate politics together to help us learn how to stand as one to make a better, and some might argue even survivable, world. And yes, Bernie Sanders lost not one, but two bids to become president. But in the wake of those campaigns, his supporters have mobilized to elect socialists, usually running as Democrats, to local, state, and national office. One of Karl Marx's most famous lines from his 1848 blockbuster, The Communist Manifesto, was, The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. We do have a world to win, and what we need is a roadmap. Which is why I asked my colleague, New School for Social Research political theorist Nancy Fraser, to come on the show to talk about her book, Cannibal Capitalism, How Our System is Devouring Democracy, Care, and the Planet, and What We Can Do About It, out last fall from Verso Books. Join Nancy and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, co-executive editor of Public Seminar, and the author of The Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 21, A World to Win. I don't need to tell most listeners that the distinctive Brooklyn voice they just heard was Democratic Socialist Senator Bernie Sanders. That was an exchange with CNN's Anderson Cooper during the Democratic presidential candidates debate in Las Vegas, Nevada, on October 13, 2015. At the time, Sanders was in what turned out to be a close race with Hillary Clinton for the 2016 nomination, a contest that Clinton ultimately won. While some blamed a primary battle that went deep into the spring campaign season for Clinton's ultimate loss to Donald Trump in November 2016, there is a better way to look at Sanders' epic run. No self-declared socialist had made such a mark on a presidential cycle since Eugene Debs won almost a million votes as the Socialist Party of America candidate in the 1920 election. And imagine how well Debs might have done had he not been incarcerated in federal prison. Sanders was and is a lifetime socialist. Sanders was and is a lifetime socialist. He was first elected to Congress from Vermont's at-large district in 1990, and he made the jump to the Senate in 2006. He's very popular where I live in New England, and it's not because those states are socialist, as the Republican Party would tell you, but because he has consistently championed the interests of all working people. Bernie has my vote, said one blue-collar guy who answered the door in southern New Hampshire when I was canvassing for Elizabeth Warren in 2020. Whenever there's a strike around here, he walks the picket line with us. Lots of Democratic senators back labor, of course. But how many mainstream politicians are willing to say that capitalism is broken? That we need the state to safeguard all workers from exploitation by providing a living wage, nutritious food, Medicare for all, safe working conditions, child care, the right to unionization, affordable housing and food, renewable energy, and free education? 
that it is an affront to human decency to allow banks, hedge funds, and corporations to poison the environment, turn all labor into piecework, and financialize the basic necessities that all humans need to live. Perhaps what the 2016 Sanders campaign said most clearly to Americans was, we have choices. In a democratic system, we don't have to allow corporations to run our lives, make us work harder for less, profit from poverty, siphon their profits upwards, and pay no taxes. And the moments where that clarity has come to more people are coming faster and faster. The 1999 World Trade Organization protests in Seattle, the 2011 takeover of Zuccotti Park in Lower Manhattan by Occupy Wall Street that launched a global anti-capitalist protest, a resurgence of Democratic Socialists of America after 2013 that is credited with the emergence of millennial socialism. Many of those young people swelled the ranks of Black Lives Matter, which took to the streets in the summer of 2020 to put racism back on the national agenda. In all of these movements, activists and intellectuals have worked to expand the socialist vision by weaving critical race, feminist, indigenous, queer, labor, and climate politics together to help us learn how to stand as one to make a better, and some might argue even survivable, world. And yes, Bernie Sanders lost not one, but two bids to become president. But in the wake of those campaigns, his supporters have mobilized to elect socialists usually running as Democrats, to local, state, and national office. One of Karl Marx's most famous lines from his 1848 blockbuster, The Communist Manifesto, was, The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. We do have a world to win, and what we need is a roadmap. Which is why I asked my colleague, New School for Social Research political theorist Nancy Frazier, to come on the show to talk about her book, Cannibal Capitalism, how our system is devouring democracy, care, and the planet, and what we can do about it, out last fall from Verso Books. Join Nancy and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, co-executive editor of Public Seminar, and the author of The Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 21, A World to Win. Nancy Frazier, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. So, Nancy, this wonderful book, Cannibal Capitalism, was almost written before the pandemic started. And then it seems like the pandemic provided this perfect illustration of what you were writing about. Can you describe that moment where you're at your desk? The world is locking down, and the crisis that you imagined in this book was actually happening. Yeah, I I remember it very vividly. I was in Vermont for uh, much of the pandemic, and I was locked down in my house. I was trying desperately to get supplies of masks and other PPE. In those days, we were using Clorox wipes all the time. 
I was watching on TV and listening on the radio to what was going on in Queens, this horrific holocaust of, of people, especially elderly people, the non-availability of ventilators, the healthcare professionals in the hospitals having to wear masks over and over and over again. And it just struck me that there were so many things going on here that I had been writing about for the last couple of years. And the pandemic was a kind of perfect storm in which a number of different crisis points came together. It was a real convergence point. So one thing was the virus itself. Where did the virus come from? Well, we don't know the exact answer to that question yet. There are some competing theories. But one thing is clear, and that is that tropical deforestation and climate change caused enormous species migrations, all sorts of animals, bats and other animals that had not been in close contact with one another were suddenly thrown together as they were forced to seek new habitats. And so we got lots of what the scientists call zoonotic transfers, those leaps of pathogens from one species to another. This is, by the way, how humans began to get AIDS and Ebola and MERS and SARS. And COVID is another one of these transfers of pathogens that we never had to deal with before and had no immunity to. Now, I think that that is largely due, as I said, to tropical deforestation on the one side and climate change on the other. And by the way, both of those things came to us courtesy of capitalism, of this mad rush to development at all costs, these invasions into wilderness areas, pumping out of greenhouse gases, which caused uh, the warming. So right away, COVID was related to what I think of as the ecological strand of our present crisis. And that isn't over. That's going to continue. There will be more pandemics as we, if we continue, as I hope we won't, to you know, cut down rainforests and pave over wilderness areas and force more and more of these zoonotic transfers. One of the points I think you make very effectively in the book is that the history of capitalism is the history of crisis and that crisis is built into capitalism. But you also suggest at the beginning that while we should all still be reading Marx, Marx could not anticipate the nature of these crises. And I wonder if you could first talk to us about Marx's theory of capitalism and then talk to us a little bit about how the idea of cannibal capitalism replaces Marx's theory. Well, I want to say first off that it's a little difficult to talk about Marx's theory. It's quite complicated and there are many different interpretations of it. And I think a careful reading would show that he was a lot hipper to some of the stuff I'm talking about than would normally be understood. So instead of talking about Marx himself, I prefer to talk about the doctrine that was codified as Marxism, which informed all the labor movements and socialist parties and so on and so forth. And that was a doctrine that located the trouble inside the economic realm within capitalist society that stressed contradictions within that realm, which had to do with the production of too much capital with no place to be invested, 
with not paying high enough wages for people to buy this stuff. And these periodic depressions, stock market crashes, mass unemployment, that's what we think of as capitalist crisis. Economic crisis caused by these contradictions internal to the economic sphere. Okay, that I don't have any argument against that, but my claim is that that's not all there is to it, that there are further forms of crisis or tendencies to crisis that are built into capitalist societies. And these have to do with other kinds of contradictions, not ones within the economy, but rather between the economy and other spheres or arenas of life. And I associate that idea with the other Carl, Carl Polanyi. So I think what I'm trying to do is synthesize two Carls. That's how I describe my work. (laughs) Polanyi's idea was that the drive, the built-in drive to capital accumulation to expand the economy is always coming into contradiction with or threatening to destabilize and even to destroy other things that are necessary for the economy to exist, but exist sort of outside it. They're still within capitalist society, but they're not in the economy of capitalist society. Well, one of these, which I was just talking about, was nature. If you don't have a sustainable, natural, ecosystemic biosphere, you're not going to have energy. You're not going to have raw materials. You're not going to have the general conditions like breathable air, drinkable water, fertile soil, and so on that you need. And yet, you could say the capitalist economy depends on those things, but is also pushing the envelope, always driving in ways that endanger them, that destabilize them. So that's one example of what I call an inter-realm contradiction as opposed to an intra-realm contradiction. Capitalism has a built-in tendency not only to economic crisis, but also to environmental crisis. I could tell a parallel story about several other realms. I think there's a built-in crisis of care tendency or social reproduction. I think there's a built-in political crisis tendency. I think there's a built-in crisis of colonial, racial, imperial injustice. And this has to do with Again, the way the economic expansionist drive endangers its own conditions of possibility, which are outside it. Now, that's so interesting. And I was thinking when I was reading that portion of the book about Carolyn Frazier's award-winning biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder, in which she talks about how white people are sort of sent out into the Midwest to farm. And part of the point is so that railroads can make money and they can be sold tools and supplies and so on and so forth. And by doing this, actually, these farmers literally destroy the land and are driven out by bankruptcy. And of course, that's the late 19th century. Absolutely. And another great book that describes this process uh, beautifully is uh, William Cronin's book, a great, great book that Nature's Metropolis? Nature's Metropolis. You're, you yes. got it. Tries to, in a deep way, show how the history of nature and of society are, are deeply intertwined and how 
basically, you took a very biodiverse landscape and turned it into monoculture on the one hand, and then to forests that were just clear cut in, in the northern Midwest on the other hand, and created these abstract forms of product like grain that you could trade futures in. This is all relevant. And these are the kind of source materials that I'm using in, in my book to construct the theory. And I, I try to do parallel things with the whole issue of unwaged care work or social reproductive labor, because somebody has to produce the workers who go to the factories and make the, the widgets that make the profits. And we know that historically that has mainly, although not entirely, been women who have done it in one form or another, either within private households with no uh, pay at all, or in public institutions with very low pay, like hospitals, schools, uh, et cetera, et cetera, or as, as domestic service workers. And that's another absolutely necessary condition for the economic powerhouse that we think of as capitalism, this dynamo of productivity. But the other side of that productivity is a kind of destructivity, right? This using up of energies for care, not being replenished, not being uh, repaired uh, in, in terms of damages that are done. That's another story. And I think that we're facing this crisis of care side in a very acute way today, as women are recruited more and more heavily into the full-time paid workforce. And there's the time crunch, who's taking care of not just the kids and the aging parents, but, you know, the laundry, the cooking, and in general, keeping the social ties in good working order. That's all under tremendous pressure now. And by the way, back to your first point, the pandemic really revealed that as well, how important that social reproductive work was and what happened when things went kaflui with the pandemic and it suddenly all was in the home with all the extra work of schooling and so on thrown on top of it. I mean, that's an excellent example. It, you know, it's no accident that a million women have disappeared from the workforce. And it is a feature of cannibal capitalism that people are in a frenzy about repairing this. How do we get these women back to the workforce without actually wanting to deal with why they left in the first place? Care work is one of the best examples of a parallel you set up here, exploitation and expropriation. First of all, what do we mean by exploitation and why is that different from expropriation? Right. Here, I, I really am starting with Marx and with the idea that within capitalism, wage workers in the factories and so on are paid only for what he calls their necessary labor hours, meaning the time of the working day, that portion of hours in the day in which they produce sufficient value to cover their living costs. Wages in capitalism are essentially living costs. They're not like, you know, amounts of, of uh, income that you can save in order to become a capitalist. You're sort of always starting over day after day because you haven't gotten much more than your living costs. Okay. But workers, according to Marx, 
work more hours than those necessary hours. There are also surplus hours. Maybe they produce enough value for their living costs in four hours, but they're working eight. What happens to the value? The capitalist appropriates it and tries to realize it as profit. And that's exploitation. The exploitation is the gap between what you're paid uh, in terms of the value you produce and what you're not paid, what goes to the capitalist. All of this happens through a labor contract, a labor market. It's legally regulated, or it's supposed to be. And the workers in that situation are supposed to be free. They can quit at any time. They're not bound to any master. They can move around. They uh, presumably have citizenship rights. They can complain to the National Labor Relations Board if their contract is being violated, et cetera, et cetera. However, there's an awful lot of labor in the capitalist world today, and there has always been, that does not fit that picture. This is labor where the people are not really free. They are, if they're not literally enslaved, they may be trafficked, they may be bonded, they may be immobilized by debt in the form of some kind of a debt peonage. They may be locked into sweatshops. They owe the employer so much that they can never really leave. These are all forms of, if not literally slave labor, I would say dependent or semi-free or even unfree. And these workers are not regulated by labor contracts. They generally don't have the kind of rights, actionable rights, that they could really call upon states to protect them. And in a sense, they're unable to limit what their bosses can do to them. They're much more vulnerable, by the way, to sexual harassment in the workplace as a result. If you think of migrants without papers and so on, these people are at the mercy or farm workers that are, uh, don't have the options to, to quit and so on. So that's what I mean by expropriated labor. They often do not receive even their living costs. They're being paid below living costs. So they're scrambling in all kinds of ways to piece together a subsistence standard of living. Maybe they're growing some of their own food on the side in, in uh, rural areas. Uh, maybe they're doing sex work on the side, trying to sort of piece together an income. To my mind, this is a f- fundamental distinction between those workers who are, quote unquote, merely exploited, which is bad enough, from those that are downright expropriated. And guess what? That distinction corresponds roughly to what W.E.B. Du Bois called the global color line. If you look at who's in in one category and who's in the other, there's a pretty, maybe not 100% perfect, but there's a pretty good match between those who were colonized and uh, or enslaved or dispossessed by settler colonialists and so on. So this is a fundamental color division in capitalism. And it says to me that it's not accidental that historically all known capitalist societies have been in one way or another racist. They have institutionalized racial oppression in one way or another. 
That's not an accident. It's because of this structural feature of the way labor is organized in these two main categories. And uh, as you said, sometimes the division is less sharp than at other times. I think we're in a moment now where in our country, it's being blurred a little bit because the situation of the previously merely exploited white workers is, be, is deteriorating with the end of a high-paid unionized manufacturing work, the proliferation of low-wage service work. Their condition is starting, at least uh, objectively speaking, to look closer to that of the historically expropriated subjects of color. Now, that doesn't mean they necessarily feel any more friendly to those people, but objectively speaking, it's a convergence. Well, and in American history, actually, we see that driving white supremacy. White supremacist movements are often fueled by workers who are experiencing enhanced exploitation and expropriation, resisting the idea that they are actually becoming like black and brown people. Definitely. That, that's a very deep and important point, that it, it is in these periods. Look, those people had to fight tooth and nail themselves to become merely exploited because capitalism did start out with nice labor contracts for everybody. People had to form unions and labor parties and, 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 and go on strike and so on to, to, to achieve that status. It's not the world's greatest status, but they, they fought for it. And the prospect of being sort of, quote, unquote, dragged down to a category of persons that they had seen as inferior and as unable to protect themselves, right? That triggers enormous paranoia, enormous persecutory scapegoating, and all the rest. And and it is in those periods, I think, where the situation of the merely exploited is being threatened and undermined, that racism becomes exacerbated. Nancy, one of the things I couldn't stop thinking about as I was reading Cannibal Capitalism were the ways in which you, as a prominent feminist in the political theory community, were in some ways also showing us a different path to thinking about what feminist interventions in social inequality could look like. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. The problem, as I see it in the United States at least, is the real dominance within feminism of a kind of liberal perspective, which is essentially meritocratic as opposed to egalitarian, meaning that it's all about kind of removing discriminatory obstacles that prevent talented women from rising to the uh, full uh, extent of of their talent. It's that idea of the career open to talents. Now, this has benefited some people. I would even count myself as someone among them. But it really doesn't do much for the mass of poor and working class women, of women of color and lower middle class women and so on, because it's it's not good enough to say women should be equal to the men of their own class and race. Feminism should be for a more egalitarian society, 
that can benefit the overwhelming majority of women and not just the few born with the right skin color, the right cultural capital from their families and, and educational opportunities and so on. Uh, I'm a co-author of, a, of another book with uh, two colleagues called Feminism for the 99%. And, and we were kind of inspired by Occupy and by the Bernie Sanders campaign and so on um, to say, um, look, there's another kind of feminism here. And it's one that doesn't separate so-called gender issues from other issues like labor issues, like environmental issues, like racial justice or I should say injustice issues, from democracy issues. The idea that there's a thing that's just the pure gender that that is disconnected from all of that is a problem. That ends up being the feminism of the 1%, or maybe we should say the 10%, whatever the number right number is. And this Cannibal Capitalism book, like the Feminism for the 99% book, is aimed at, in a sense, creating a, drawing a kind of a map for people who are interested in activism. Everybody is affected, I would say, by this severe crisis that we're in, but not everyone is affected in the same way. People are located in different points. For some people, sexual harassment at work is the most pressing, urgent issue. For others, it's climate change, you know, mass floods and, and wildfires. For others, it's having their children shot down in the streets by police. You can't say that one is more urgent than another. It really depends on where you are. But all of these things, in my view, are rooted in one and the same social system. Capitalism in this sense that I'm analyzing it, cannibal capitalism, not that orthodox Marxian picture. And I hope that what I've done in this book is begin to create the outlines of a map of how that system works and how it lies at the root of all of these issues, all of these forms of crisis, so that people can get a different sense from the one we get from liberal feminism of who our potential allies are and who the real enemy is. And by the way, I think that could also... If, if the message could be gotten to them, help enlighten the right-wing populist white working class people who are becoming, you know, intensely white supremacists. It, it could show them something important about who their real enemies are and who they could conceivably ally with to build a stronger movement to change things. Yes. And, and of course, what they do is instead of really pinning it on capitalism, it's the elites who are doing the wrong thing with capitalism, or it's the international globalist conspiracies, or it's conspiracist thinking is a very conscious deflection from a critique of capitalism. But yes. I, want to, I want to sort of shift a little to something else your book made me think about, which was consumption. The historic... Uh, trajectory of capitalism has been to assuage people of all classes with consumer goods, Um, whether it's cheaper cars, whether it's cheaper clothes, things that are stylish, that can make you look like people who are very wealthy and so on. Perhaps if we're really going to tackle cannibal capitalism head on, 
we need to start imagining that we will make do with less. Like we don't need to have blueberries in the middle of the winter. Well, I, I, I'm of two minds. I wouldn't myself endorse the phrase need to make do with less because the fact of the matter is that there are people all over the world who don't have adequate nutrition, healthcare, shelter, and so on. And there are people in this country as well. I don't think that's the right message, and I don't think it's the right idea. But let's say we need to make do with different. I think the argument should be that we can have better lives, more enjoyable lives with more leisure, better, more nutritious food, if we get rid of factory farming, for example, but not less. Some things we need more of, other things we need less or none of, and the trick is to figure out which is which and to figure out how we produce what we decide we do need in such a way that the work is enjoyable, pleasurable, free, and democratically organized and and remunerated in such a way that people can have good lives. And also, I think time is crucial. We need to reorganize the whole temporality of our society so that we have time for some of this pleasurable, free, and meaningful work, socially useful work, but also time for lives, community experiences, for family work and and relationships, for friendships, for political engagement, for artistic enjoyment, for lots of different things. I don't think the issue is quantity. I don't like when people talk about growth versus degrowth. Growth of what? If you want to use Marxian lingo, let's say growth of use values, the things that actually serve useful social purposes, and not of growth of capital, growth Mm -hmm. of investment values, of share prices, right, of of debt. Those are the things that are growing now. Those we don't need. That's extremely important. And I've been thinking a lot about expropriation lately, but I didn't have the language for it before I read this book, Preparation for Retiring. I went down to half time this year. So I determined that for half my salary, I was not going to work full time. I wasn't going to work three quarters time. I was going to work exactly 20 hours a week. And I came to realize that I hit that 20 hours by about the middle of the afternoon on Tuesday. So this means for years, I have been giving 60 or 70 hours a week to my employer. Not all of that has been unpleasant. You know, a great deal of it was things I wanted to do. But even if you look at our relatively privileged sphere we are supposed to write for our jobs. But actually, there's nothing that says this is your time in the week for writing. You go home and write in the evenings and on the weekends and in the summers. And so there are aspects of this in everybody's lives. And and the real revolution might be if we all collectively began to understand that and work together across our work categories to honor each other and to change, right? I think that's uh, fabulous. You are inspiring me to start keeping accounts of my time because I'm in exactly the same situation. I've gone half time and I'm certainly not working in a half time way. 
So yes, um, this is very important. I think that you know we can distinguish between the time where we, if you want to call work what we do out of necessity because we need food, we need shelter, we need healthcare, we need education. There are all sorts of things. We need roads that don't have potholes at every step. We need transportation, clean, green, et cetera, et cetera. There's a certain amount of work that is really necessary. And a lot of what's necessary today is repair work because capitalism it's like a plague of locusts, that's to use another metaphor, uh, cannibal. Uh, it just kind of like attracts a swath of immense destruction across the globe. And industry, business has no responsibility and accepts no responsibility to repair that or to replenish what they are taking. So there's a lot of work that is really necessary, but I still believe that we could in a different system, work far fewer hours than we do now, because we wouldn't be producing all the unnecessary stuff, you know, the arms, the pollution, et cetera, et cetera. And then we would have, in a sense, the time at work, but we could organize that time. So it was less onerous, less policed, less unpleasant, less alienated, and then we could also figure out what to do with the other time and, and the, the, the really free time. But even the time at work could be a lot more free than it is now. I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, one of the things that I also think the pandemic brought home was when people were working at home and had these other responsibilities, it, it suddenly started to think, well, what is it that I do at work? So now all of a sudden we're talking about a four-day work week again. We're talking about why people actually like working at home, why they think it's more efficient to work at home and friendlier to work at home. Do you think those conversations will continue? And do you think they'll actually force changes in the system? I hope they'll continue. I do think we had uh, uh, experiences that provoked a lot of reflection and a lot of learning about what the system is and how it works. And let me just add another point that we learned from the pandemic about this. This idea of essential work, which we talked about all the time, who are the essential workers? Well, capitalist labor markets are a very poor reckoning of what is essential and what is not, because it turned out, if you leave aside the medical professionals, the doctors and nurses, who were the essential workers? Amazon distribution workers, Grubhub food deliverers, slaughterhouse workers, and other agricultural workers. In other words, very low paid, again, often workers of color, often immigrants. So the the essential workers were basically treated as disposable workers. They're very underpaid. They did not have the luxury to stay at home. They were sent out onto the front lines to face infection. You know, this whole question of what is essential and what is not, that, that was, to me, a, a real learning moment. When you ask, will things change? Will people put these these learned lessons to work? There are no guarantees at all. We are living in a in a political context that is, you know, things are not going well in, uh, in this country and in many other places uh, in terms of what politics is, how it's shaping up. 
And I would say it's not just that we have all that conspiracy stuff you were referring to before, all the the very regressive, reactionary, uh, persecutory forms of politics that we know as Trumpism, MAGA, right-wing politics, and so on, uh, right-wing populism. But it's also that the sort of liberal corporate elites are missing in action on these issues. They will defend gay marriage. They will defend crack the glass ceiling. They will defend that elite kind of meritocratic progressivism, but they will not defend the living standards of the working classes. And that including all the, the gay, lesbian, trans people in the working classes, all the women in the working classes, all the people of color and so on in the working classes and the whites. So we're caught between, what, what's the word, you know, a rock and a hard place. We, we have sort of two options on offer for our politics, neither of which will help us. Of course, we're horrified by the Trumpists, and many of uh, us are, are tempted, therefore, to sort of scurry back to, to the liberals. And, but we actually really need a third option. Um, and um, I don't know at this moment where that's going to come from. There was a moment where it looked like the Sanders option in the U.S. could go in that direction. It was squelched and, you know, Bernie himself is probably not going to make another run. And it's not clear whether there's a figure there that can represent that in this country if he's out of the picture. So I'm not sure. There are lots of social movement activism, but it doesn't coalesce. It's fragmented. And again, back to what I was trying to do in this book, I was trying to create a map that would suggest the possibility of much broader alliances that could overcome that fragmentation and dispersal. Well, and of course, one of the things you illustrate so beautifully in the book is that exploitation and expropriation, when they're working together, actually do work to prevent social movements from coalescing, from from making common cause with each other. Um, who has the time? Who has the energy? Who you know? Everyone needs to go home and take care of their family. Nancy, I'd like to turn to what is my final question in every episode, which is why should our listeners read this book now? Oh my goodness! Well, uh, there are lots of great books to read. What this one can offer is an analysis of why life is so difficult and so painful for many of us today. It's not going to tell you that it's difficult and painful. You already know that if you're at all tempted to pick up this book. But it might help you get a deeper grasp of why the social system is, in a non-accidental way, producing so much suffering and difficulty, so much time crunch, so much precarity in our livelihoods, so much strain on our relationships, and such bad politics. And that's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com 
for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.